you know, at this point for me, I'm just kind of done with these notions of ultimate truth. And I, to be honest, I don't care if, if this mystical map is the ultimate truth. I'm concerned with how it affects my life. I'm concerned with how it affects my relationships and how it affects other people and society. And so I think the thing with trying on or exploring different maps is to see what experience it leads to. Hello, everyone. That was the voice of today's guest, Jessica Nathanson. After spending many years engrossed in the spiritual philosophy of non-dualism, Jessica grew disillusioned with some of its more dehumanizing tenets. She now runs a blog called The Glorious Both And, where she collaboratively reflects upon spirituality going wrong and what a more humane and wholesome approach might look like. One quick note, you will hear Jessica and I using terms like non-duality, advaita, and even neo-advaita throughout this talk. If you're not familiar with them, they are all really just variations on the word spirituality. I do want to reflect on how my use of these terms might not be helpful, but that's one for the future. Right now, here's Jessica explaining her journey. Yeah, the first thing that strikes me, and I think that um, it's something that I try to communicate, is that neo-advaita was radically liberating for me I mean that was my holy grail like for you know it was probably about four years that it was nothing like I was an evangelist if you will um but well I mostly kept it to myself but I would have been <laughs> um but it was radically liberating so I think that my the message that I really want to get out and share is more so the double-edged sword aspect of it um, and how something that can really radically free people can also later on, or maybe quickly on, can something that can be radically freeing can also be radically imprisoning. And that, you know, it's that both and. And I think that um, the whole sort of like panacea advertisement of it is what's so part of what's so problematic about it, because everything that everything it says to do and that will alleviate suffering is also something that can be a source of suffering. And so there's just all of these really um, difficult things there where, you know, the no self, no suffering is, I would say, not a trustworthy or reliable, um, reliable uh, description of a path that's going to be in the long term contributing to overall well-being that's my my perspective from what i've seen and what i've experienced from listening to interviews you've done i think maybe we have a similar experience here that a lot of the concepts which spirituality really values like no self are, they kind of depend on the context in which you get into them so like as a teenager i read rene descartes so when we first got the internet I, that's what i one of the first thing i did i downloaded descartes meditations what a weird thing to do in yeah. 15 oh wow that's what i did and in that philosophy which is kind of like a self-inquiry, where Dacos goes in to find this solid sense of, I think, therefore, I am self. And that felt like, okay, yeah. that sounds great. So I exist, and then I can go figure out what life is with this solid sense of self to stand on. And then when I was around 18, that just started falling apart uh, in ways like I realized I go to sleep at night, right? Yeah. And this I, that I think I am, just completely disappears for eight hours. And like, how did that never occur to me? And then if I didn't sleep enough, I'd be kind of groggy the next day, and I wouldn't be as sharp. But how can the I be dependent on what I eat or what is it? And it just, all of this. And then, then it felt like it was also, there was a consistent I, like I'm leaving school, technically an adult. And I feel the same as when I was 
my first day when I was four. So what's that? But that's not the eye that changes. And then it just hit me one day that there was no solid sense of self there, that they were just thoughts arising out of something. And that wasn't like a blissful realization for me. That was horrendous, right? That Because the one thing I thought I had to stand on just collapsed. And I, I, right. I didn't know anything about spirituality. Not really. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's interesting that in the same way people who have near-death experience, the positive and the negative ones are often the same experience. So some people go, I was floating out of my right. body and there was this tunnel I could see my relatives or I was floating out of my body and my dead relatives, you know, it depends on how you exactly. take it. And I think I've heard you say similar things to that about depersonalization, haven't I? Yeah, it's a tough one because I what I feel really strongly about with um, derealizing spiritual paths or teachings or philosophies is that they blur the line between mystic and psychotic. Mm. which is that amazing quote and i don't know who said it but the something like the mystic no the psychotic drowns in the same waters that the mystic yeah i think it was carl jung like, was it I there's think some so, yeah. quotes from carl jung that i didn't know were called carl jung and so it's interesting um but that you know and and it's just something that i'm, I'm still very interested in how do you how do we account for when depersonalization is freeing and liberating versus when it's harrowing and maddening, because essentially they are based on the same thing. You know, there's no me, there's no self, but in one moment that can be the most exquisite, you know, hilarious, um, transcendent freeing experience. And then even, you know, an hour later or a year later, it flips into the opposite. So that's where I get back to this whole dangerous thing where, you know, you're describing something that's going to free you where the description of it is sort of like textbook. If you go to the DSM, which I'm not a huge fan of, but you know what I mean? Something, I do know that, what you, mean, yeah. uh, you know, describes something that's horrifying for many people. So it's tricky. Just because it, it became for me probably the most wonderful thing in life that there is this great mystery in my center and I can touch that and marvel at it and be absorbed into it but when it first sure. hit me I didn't have that context of knowing that was a good thing I thought oh, maybe I've just broken my brain here you know it's, it's going to be really bad mm. so sure. how have you found this journey you've been on coming out and talking about this and going on some like podcasts like Bat Gap and a lot of people see this message now I know you've been you've received a fair chunk of correspondence with people haven't you saying non-duality ruined my life essentially. And I'm going to assume you've also received some pushback of people saying, oh, well, Jessica just doesn't really get it. You know, she's just not finally had that real day. And when she does, she'll see it all makes sense. Yeah. So what's yeah, been your yeah. experience of like coming out and talking about this? Yeah. Well, it's really good that you say that. Um, the first thing that you said was, so I always want to, once the word non-duality comes up, I always get that, oh, you know, because people have said, you know, non-duality ruined my life, it's problemat problematic, but the terminology is hard because, again, non-duality is so many things. And what frustrates me about sort of the neo-advaita and like modern Western non-dual stuff is that they're taking the word non-duality and making it seem like they have a, you know, that they're what non-duality is when non-duality, whether you think of it as non-division or oneness or whatever, um, is something that's, you know, it's just something that's part of the universe. And of course, there's so many different mystical traditions that have non-duality within them. So I think one of the things that people push back on a lot is where they're like, you know, um, it's not, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater of non-duality, but then what are you even talking about there? So I think it's it can be very important to say, what are the things that 
that were ruining people's lives. And that would be more specifically, let's say, this idea and experience of you don't exist, the world isn't real, you know, the the one who's suffering is just this fictional story in your head, nothing matters, there's no doer, right, all of that stuff. Um, and I've been getting, I can't tell you how many emails I've been getting from people who are just like, the story is always so similar. It's different, you know, different situations, but it's always so similar. And I've been putting together and growing this archive of testimonials because, um, you know, it's, again, it's just the, the most notable thing about it that's just so, I think, ironic, but tragic is how this movement or teachings or experience, whatever you want to call it, is all dedicated to um, eradicating the sense of separateness and separation that's seen as the source of all suffering. And what the number one thing that most people say is that eventually, at some point, it left them more radically isolated, alone, and separated from other humans and from the world than they ever could have imagined. So I think it's that's a good kind of place to start in terms of what I hear from the most is that kind of radical loss of relationality, um, detachment, um, and yeah, just total kind of isolation, which is, yeah. It, it does intrigue me that, that when I encounter people who are seriously into Neo-Advaita, they're often not very relational people. They just make statements. No. They don't really converse. And that that's the same this thing you would expect to find of someone who was really so locked into their own sense of self, their own ego, that they can only contemplate their own thoughts and they can't recognize as two people in this interaction. Yeah. That, that's what comes across. And I can, I've been trying to do it a bit this week in, in preparations of sinking back into my biography experientially, if you like, and thinking, okay, what was it like six months after I got into meditation or a year when I started to have those depersonalization experiences and maybe started to... Yeah actually experience something of that greater consciousness but to do it in a way where i was still very much there kind of maybe conflating myself with it it, it can be hard to language but and and having this sense of yeah. not being relation at all like someone would say something to me and i just wouldn't know how to respond because i'm just having this yeah. experience of blankness not some loving vibrant consciousness manifesting through That's this physical right. form just a, a blankness right. then of feeling like I don't, I don't know what to say i'm i'm actually far worse off for this and even people who are really, I, I see people will write things about their like romantic relationships, maybe that, you know, my partner finds it hard because there's no one here at the other end. There's no one to relate to. And on, on a experiential level now, I just don't get that. And it's not that I walked away from non-duality. I feel like I feel it was a long and circuitous journey, but I really benefited from it and feel much, much better mm -hmm. from that sense of dissolution into this deeper presence, this deeper being that comes through me. But yeah. At the same time, I feel like I know less have an individuated self or a personality than I have a body, if you see what I mean. It would be like a kind of crazy thing to to deny that mm -hmm. there's, there's, a, there's obviously a person here who's having this conversation with another person. So in, unless I, I try and sink back into how it was for me 20 years ago, I find it almost hard to relate to this stuff. When I hear people, it doesn't sound healthy or desirable at all. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. And that's where I feel like it's something that does have that double-edged sword aspect and where um, it can also have a bit of an expiration date, right? Because it's like, for me, it only came up when I realized how harmed my ability to be in relationships was that I was like, 
fuck, like I have a choice to make here, right? It's like this impersonal, but oddly a very personal, impersonal bubble, right? Because that's the thing is that it's, who's it serving? It's a very personal, um, you know, self-centered, selfless path. As you can see, it makes you much more sort of radically self-reliant, which is what a lot of the te teachings are ironically on, right? Is you don't need anything outside of yourself. You should be able to source, you know, all of your needs from within. Um, and so it's just, yeah, that that strange sort of irony of how that stuff happens. And then one of the things that I've gotten a lot of emails about is people saying how, like, you know, I I, I almost wish that I didn't go down this path because I feel like I don't need my husband anymore. Like there's a real um, something that was the most, I think, profound, not profound, but one of the most beneficial things on one hand was that I really felt like I didn't need any, anyone anymore. Like it felt like all the reasons why you would seek a relationship, I no longer was seeking that, you know, whether it's validation or something, but it, it just didn't feel, it didn't feel important in that way anymore. And there's also a guy who, um, this one's really sad. And he said that he was on an enlightenment path that really kind of was non-relational. And he became very detached from his wife, who he loved very much. And she passed away a couple years ago. And it really hit him how much he had lost out on, you know, the preciousness of connecting, of course, with her in that that deep human to human, there's a me here and a you there, you know, kind of way. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of all over the place right now. No, it, it, I mean, it brings up memories in me, Jessica, because I remember it informed my view of relationships, just any kind of friendship relationship in that I should be radically self-reliant. So if somebody does something like, if you turn up to this conversation an hour late and drunk, I would say, ah, that's absolutely fine, <laughs> you know, and I would never express frustration. And I remember after a few years, like getting wound up with a friend of mine and expressing that. I, I've talked to her about this since actually, like what was going on there, because it was like, I was kind of like a toddler again, you know, like two-year-olds, like they learn the word no and they go around saying it all the time. And, or they'll say something like really rude to their parents because they want to, like, they want to have that experience with someone it's safe to have it with because they're, they're finding right. their own boundaries. I was like refinding that after almost immersing myself back in this womb or really in just a, a, a strange ideology because it's obviously, it's not good for you or another person if you don't ever correct their behavior or point out how it's affecting you. And I, I definitely think it took me down that path and I had to relearn those kind of boundaries then. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that's the really the relational relationality aspect of it is what's really hit me. And, you know, it this this teaching and this path does not benefit relationships in, in my perspective in any real long term, you know, overall way for individually and also collectively. And I think when when for me, like looking at the bigger picture of what what is society suffering from the most? Of course, it's division, and that's what it's saying, except its antidote to that just creates more division, because what I realized in trying to eradicate separation, you eradicate relationship. So it's, you're doing, it's the, it's the wrong thing to try to do. And so instead, my understanding has been, you know, it's not about getting rid of separation, it's about adding in that there's also oneness, so that you have unity, rather than this idea that oneness is about disappearing. Because if you disappear, you've dropped out of relationship. And so I see so much the the tragedy, which I really do think that this has become somewhat of like a 
someone said cultural, and I said maybe more of a subcultural kind of tragedy or even crisis, because this generation is suffering so much from, from division and isolation, and it's creating more of that. And then also healthy relationships. Like we've been learning so much about trauma and relational wounding and how so much of our suffering comes from that early relational wounding. Um, and these, you know, we, we need to learn how to better communicate, how to have even sometimes more uh, stable boundaries and all of these things that eroding all of that just makes it so much worse, you know? And so it's really hard to see people still going to these teachings that I just keep thinking, you know, this is not this is not going to help the things that that society is suffering from the most. And those are only just a couple of examples. Yeah. And for me, I think the, one of the biggest things I got out of it, I mean, I suppose connecting with one's own deep conscious being is requires no further justification, but mm -hmm. it, it does have benefits. Right. Sure. And I was able to find a place inside myself that was beyond my opinions. OK, like the ground in which opinions rise and fall. And then I'm not so attached to my opinions and it, it opens up this way of dialoguing that's not warfare because mm -hmm. you're not fighting to defend an opinion which you seem like you're holding on to for dear life so yeah. that was an, like an exploration for me of how, how can people embrace this consciousness in a way that sure. overcomes the, the divisions which seem to yeah. seem to get worse in society right. politically and, and all the rest um, yeah but i mean i, I do see non-duality people who are really embracing that but i also see this kind of real stuckness in I'm the only person here, you know, and, and just a conflation then. Cause I think, I wonder what you think about this. When people have this sense that they have really permanently dissolved into this consciousness and there's no personality left. I think they're not being honest with themselves quite a lot of the time. Cause I think if you, anyone can like say anything on a YouTube video or get up on stage and give a presentation, like Tim made a point to me once that non-duality has a really low bar to entry because all you've got to do is get up on a stage and say you don't exist and nothing's happening and this isn't real for 20 minutes and and you're a teacher you don't have to like paint a nice painting or anything and so like you actually have some demonstration and yeah like the one i painted for this uh for this interview yeah um and so there's no and in a sense that makes it like i started a group a few years ago to do non-dual stuff and one of the things i said to start is like part, part of the reason i've done this uh, i started with a group of other people um is to i don't want to do competitive non-duality right because it's like you get a group of people together and they're all kind of precious about like they're in a state of consciousness they've attained and there's no way of demonstrating that so people start making assumptions about what someone else's consciousness is like this person's awake that person, i can see that this person's got it no they don't and and also what i see is those qualities those more uh or less admirable human qualities like anger and loss they don't go away but when they occur in someone who thinks that they've stepped away from the personality, then they either have to be repressed or the, they have to be justified in some way. So like being annoyed of someone because they've insulted you becomes righteous anger and you find like then there's an abusive guru, right? So just because of the levels of abuse you've seen in guru culture, the consistency of that, I think there has to be something in this process. Like, it can't just be that narcissists always rise to the top. There has to be something in this process, which is fundamentally unhealthy in what it does to your brain and the way, and the way you then sure. relate or don't relate to people. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole thing is spiritual bypassing. I mean, I think it's at this point, I would say neo-advaita and of course, radical non-dualism is, I mean, that's what it is. It's spiritual bypassing. I mean, they pretty much 
denigrate any sense of doing any developmental work or psychotherapy or any of that. But there's that, I think, like you said, I think it's a, an illusion that um, that all of these complexes and all of these negative aspects of your personality are somehow cleared and healed and disappear because you, mm -hmm. you know, dissolved into the background awareness. And I think that it feels that way and they can temporarily. Um, but I think that's the big sort of uh, blind spot there is that it's all still there and it's going to get triggered when you're back into those same situations, right? When something triggers your anger or you're in a relationship. But I think the the thing to look at is the fact that it be it's there's also it's very renunciates. You know, a lot of times it's becoming radically self-reliant. You don't need relationships and it's very detaching from, you know, from from interactions a lot. So I think that you tend to avoid the situations that would trigger you. So you don't see that those things are still there. And then suddenly, I think for me, at least it was years later that I got what I call like shadow attacked and was like, oh my God, all that's still there. It just, A, was repressed and B, hadn't had a chance to be triggered because I was avoiding those situations anyway. So it's like, put that guru in a certain situation and you're going to see their buttons pushed and you're going to see them, you know, unleash their rage or, you know, be very, I think I've always said like a lot of these gurus are, I say they're like no self-righteous because so many people know they're like, why are these egoless neo-advaitists so right, self-righteous and so snide and so smirky and condescending, right? Like, okay, you have no personality and no ego, but yet you constantly act as if you know better and that you're better than other people. And so there's obviously a lot of self-delusion going on, but it is very confusing. It's really confusing to think when people say that it's like, what is going on when, when people are saying that they've, you know, lost their entire sense of self and they're no longer, you know, engaging in concepts when clearly they are because they're, they're talking about the concept that they're not engaging in concepts, you mm -hmm. know? So again, it is a question of like how much of it is, um, I don't know if we need to say delusion, that's a bit extreme, though it can be, but um, illusory, right? Yeah, and it's a seductive thing to, to buy into. How have you found people emerging out of this? Because I mean, one of the issues is, it's, oh, what's the word, like a logical, um, logically complete or something, like, um, it's a loop, right? I'm, I, there's, a, there's a term, I can't think of it. Um, there's a kind of logical consistency to non-duality where it has an answer for everything. So if you're mm -hmm. in it and you feel like you're not doing well, it's not having a good effect on you, it can be hard to reason your way out of it because yeah, it is true that everything is just arising in consciousness or, or something like that. You know, so how, how do you find people, your own maybe, and people's emergence out of uh, this, this philosophy into a more healthy place? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really hard because I think, um, you know, what me and I don't know if you listened to the talk with Guy Smith, I did, yeah. it's really hard because it it really has gotten a hold of your entire, you know, worldview and in ways that you didn't realize, you know, like it's uh, you think that it's beyond concepts, but it's not. It's it's just replaced. And I see it in some ways. It's mental reprogramming because you've been de radically deconditioned, right, to let go of everything. But then you've been reconditioned with all of these new beliefs about there's no self, there's no, you know, reality is just a dream. And all of this stuff is on one hand, you can experience that, but these are beliefs that come along with it. So one thing is that you had mentioned this earlier, that a lot of people 
not a lot of people, a few people have said, you know, oh, she's just, and these people were just clinging to concepts, right? So of course, if you just cling to the concepts, it could be harmful. Um, but I think because of the fact that I did go so deeply into the actual experiences, that's why I can talk about how deeply depersonalizing things became and all of this stuff. So I think, of course, people can be harmed by by just the belief system. Um, but there's this real blind spot that somehow if you let go of the beliefs and just sink into the experience that there's never going to be any harm in that. Um, and again, I'm I'm sort of going off on tangents here. Um, but I think in terms of emerging from it, a lot of it does have to do with deconstructing a lot of the, the truth notions. And I think the biggest one is ultimate truth, is this whole thing that you know, we bought into this set of beliefs being the the absolute, the ultimate truth, and it seemed to be corroborated in our experience, but you really have to break that down and say, you know, was this belief that I was given first, let's say even self-inquiry, there is no self there, and this is how you're going to discover what I've already discovered and what all these other people have already predetermined as the ultimate truth. So then, you know, you do the questioning and you say, oh, I can't find my sense of self, so I don't exist, it was never real, you know, I never existed. But if you hadn't been given those predetermined ways of interpreting that first, that might not be the experience you would have had. Maybe you would have gone inside and determined you were a unicorn, you know, or yeah. just that, you know, the self is not as solid as it seems to be. Um, it doesn't have to be that it never existed and that, you know, selfhood and the ego is a radical delusion. Like that's a specific interpretation. So I think one thing is for people coming out and, and starting to realize that these are interpretations of truth that are one set of them, but there are so many other sets of teachings that call themselves the ultimate truths. And I think breaking down the notion of ultimate truth has been big for a lot of people because it feels like, you know, for me, it was like, how could I ever come back just to believing that myself has any validity again? You know, I've seen so clearly that the self is just an illusion and that, you know, the world is really just transparent. How could I possibly get out of that? So I think it is really important that people are able to then engage with it as um sets of interpretations on experience that can mm. then be offered new potential interpretations to check out in your experience you know how does that sit with you how does it sit with you in your experience that it's not that there's no separation it's that everything is separate and one at the same time oh huh okay that that also could that also is is feeling real right now and, and for a lot of people feeling actually better um so yeah there's that i think yeah, just I'm having all these memories when I'm talking to you. So I started using the term deep state. I actually borrowed it from geopolitics before it became sort of well known and associated with Donald Trump. I did not see that coming. Um, but I started <laughs> using it maybe like 10, 12 years ago to, in reference to spirituality, to get, to get away from this very defined map. Like you go in, you discover your one consciousness, and, and that's it. Then, and I thought, mm -hmm. do we lose some of the texture and the richness of? experience going in and experiencing all these different levels of consciousness and what consciousness is and the paradoxes of seeing the thing that is looking do we lose some of that when we tell this simplistic narrative about it and maybe if if i get rid of that and just feel, okay we go inside and what we can say is there's something really deep there like you don't just go to this superficial sense of self and that's it yeah. there's something 
really deep and rich and inviting. And at the time, it just it was preferable to me because it leaves open a sense of mystery. It leaves open a sense that whatever I'm experiencing, my interpretation of that could be completely wrong. Okay. Like, and it's mm-hmm. interesting for me now because I've not really been involved in, I was never massively involved in spiritual groups other than Tim Freaks, but I haven't been to one of those in five years. And I don't think about spirituality on a day-to-day basis or the language of it or anything like that. So, but I still, I have the experience, yeah. but all the kind of concepts have fallen away. So. I don't just have these advisor thoughts running around in my head anymore. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's interesting to sort of live without that. Um, but I recall at the time where like I had this, which was about 24, I had this big mystical experience of uh, world, the veil of the world falling away and myself collapsing and this infinite ocean of love opening up. But it, it did strike me. Well, I'm really into Advaita and I had a very Advaita experience. Now, I wonder if I'd been a Christian, would I have had the same kind of emotional experience, but met Jesus or something, you know? I, I wonder to what extent, like, it just seemed too much of a coincidence, right? That, oh, it's it, the Advaita yeah. that is true then, is it right? So I, I always like to maintain some sense of intellectual curiosity that the map could be wrong. And of course, Tim's gone into that in a big way, uh, deconstructing maps and, yeah. and, and so, yeah. so, yeah. Right, and in... in you know, at this point for me, I'm just kind of done with these notions of ultimate truth. And I, to be honest, I don't care if, if this mystical map is the ultimate truth, I'm concerned with how it affects my life. I'm concerned with how it affects my relationships and how it affects other people and society. Um, And so I think the thing with um, trying on or exploring different maps is to see what experience it leads to. And what values does it lead to? Because one of the things I've thought about a lot lately is like, what does that map and the experience that results from it, what what kinds of values and qualities does it give rise to? You know, does it give rise to a sense of there being significance to one's life? Does it give rise to meaninglessness, optimism, nihilism, altruism, disdain for humanity? You know, there's that's what feels more important to me lately is to think about, you know, I don't need to just um, critique um, the truths or the truth paradigm of, you know, Eastern non-duality or new advice or whatever it is. I can talk more on what are the what's the impact that that it has on people's lives. Mm. I think we've we've had well, I don't know twenty, thirty, maybe more years in the West to see what these modern non-dual teachings are and aren't doing. And I think that we're possibly not looking enough collectively at that to see, are they actually producing the results they claim to be, right? Mm. That there's no more separation and people are free and people are, um, you know, experiencing, you know, radical effortlessness and bliss all the time. But what's that actually leading to? Is it leading to a greater sense of solidarity with the human condition? Is it creating a sense of people wanting to be more engaged in the direction that society goes in? Um, Is it leading to people uh, valuing each other more, to collaboration, you know, to all of these different um, qualities and and values that make make a difference? And so, yeah, I guess I'm just saying that I've been shifting a lot also from just talking about the map itself to what is that map leading to in Mm. terms of Again, yeah, the... well, just on that, I, I think it's reality is there's something almost too much of it to be contained, it's too big to be contained by a single yes. map, even if one of those maps is true. So, I, more recently, yeah. more recently, I've read some books on evolutionary psychology, right? And it's, it's really interesting 
to get a completely different explanation for behaviors that would I would have seen for a spiritual yeah. lens saying and say, oh right. oh maybe that's why I do that oh, I should have thought of that you know yeah. I'm not saying that is exactly. the ultimate truth either but it's just it, it is interesting how the I, I quite favor pluralism okay there's no any to be stuck right. on any one map is very constraining exactly and that's kind of what I feel we've wanted to move away from with you know the fundamentalism of a lot of theistic religions it's like the bible is the source mm. of of you know that higher authority and I think this um, you know, it was, I always don't know, do I say new advaita, do I say radical non-dualism, but again, I guess I'll say like a lot of the modern popular non-dual teachings in the West have kind of replicated that very same model. I had a woman who wrote to me the other day and she's like, it ended up being the same experience as my fundamental Christianity. You know, we couldn't question the, the guru or, you know, the non-guru spiritual guide um, you know, that was, that was off limits because this person had the ultimate truth. He was the authority. Um, there was no room for questioning that, you know, it was, um, really not so different. It's, you know, that authoritarian sort of dynamic that's built into any model that has ultimate truth in one person or some people that have it and others that don't. Yeah. And after being involved for three or four years, I realized how willing I'd been to buy into really authoritarian model and that's shocking because I, I don't think i was like that before i, I would have certainly classed myself as quite anti-authoritarian if you'd asked me i probably would have said i was when i'm going through that was yeah buying into a very authoritarian hierarchical system and when i saw what i'd done i was quite shocked by it yeah there's that moment of like me me how did, how is that me that got that that happened to but yeah i think that's a big a big like stunning moment for a lot of people when they start to when they start to see that and i think with the with this maps conversation that it's like in plurality it's it's nice to be able for people to have more options because i think that a lot of people again they think that unity consciousness and they think that oneness is is for me i feel like the the oneness of my early non-dual days wasn't it wasn't oneness in terms of being one with others or being one with the universe it was actually just disappearing right mm. it was like becoming everything else besides this and there was no witness because there was no more relationship so i think you have this model of like oneness is something that you get to by disappearing versus other models of oneness which are that both and of only because there's separateness and there's individuation can we experience oneness with others and you know this kind of comes to to tim's well i mean it's a lot of people's but tim's you know is, is one example of that where you've got separation and oneness and you've got that that both and that allows for there to be uh, a oneness with right like you and i are separate but we're also one and so we're able to to commune and communicate as one thing arising as two things and for me that's unity um but yeah so i think something that's helping people as well is to see that you know that that's not oneness that's an experience that people are referring to as oneness um but there's also other experiences that people refer to as oneness and getting to try those and and see again to have a choice you know because again when you when I got rid of this whole notion of like needing to find the truth, it was like, I'm going to choose. I want to choose what's going to be true for me. Again, based on uh, how I want to experience life. And so, yeah, I'm just remembering actually an experience which really hit me coming 
to where my doubts about this were growing. Okay, I was in a group that was doing non-dual stuff, right? It wasn't Tim's group. Uh, but well, let's say um, a lot of people in it were very invested in Eastern spirituality in different ways. And they, they yeah. would um, make jokes about Christianity as being like this really basic kind of intellectual dogmatic religion. Um, but they weren't the most compelling people in terms of just how they conducted themselves of others and a basic sense of manners. And then on the last, I was basically on a, on a, on a trip with them. And on the last day, uh, one of the guys in the trip, who they hadn't always been particularly pleasant to, revealed to me that he was a Christian. We were having dinner, and he said, yeah, I just kept quiet about it because I can see it's going to elicit a lot of comments, but and I don't really understand what they're talking about with all this non-dual stuff, to be honest, So, or how does it relate to Christianity? And I said, well, you, you've been a perfect gentleman like the entire time we were there, right? But you've got... But I'm probably guilty of this myself, that I would see Christianity as being like less than... Because I went to Sunday school and all the rest, right? And I felt a bit maybe, yeah. I don't know, let down by the Christian faith that it gave me nothing in terms of answers to deeper philosophical questions of self or the universe or anything. So I feel like I'm, I'm inside the club enough to critique it. Right. And let's say where it's yeah. failed me, but, and, but I'm listening to this guy and I'm thinking like, well, they've got all the correct opinions, right? They know all the right words to use mm -hmm. and everything. And yet that has not translated into being like half decent human beings and the way this guy's Christianity obviously has. So, that really made me think again about ideology and become very cynical about people using the right words. Yeah. Right? And it doesn't really matter, does it, if you're worshipping Jesus or whatever. It's, it's, the model is irrelevant. And I had like a, a lot less patience for people just engaging in non-dual speak after that, you know, as if that meant something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And again, it's, you know, the the whole thing of looking down on there was a lot of talk of like this is a corrective experience to religion right and all of those things but there were so many ways of course I didn't see till later that it was really just perpetuating a lot of those same those same pitfalls that seemed to be something really new um, obviously it had new elements to it but it hadn't really broken out of that that framework again of right like that hierarchy and that authoritarian that ultimate truth um, not to mention lots of other things like notions of salvation and purity and <laughs> renunciation. A lot of stuff now that I've I've come to see is like, oh wow, it's actually a lot more carryover here than I realized. And what does spirituality look like for you now that you've well, what, yeah, what does it look like for you now? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I. I I think about this a lot because spirituality is such a difficult word, of course, to describe. But for me, there's been just this really big sort of like heart, heart opening component to my experience that whether you call it spiritual or mystical or whatever it is, it's 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 about relationship, to be honest, just feeling that being a part of being a part of a greater whole that I think all of us, or I feel that all of us are expressions of. And so it's more about, like I said, that, that oneness of this phrase, I really like that Jason Schulman says a oneness of, of multiplicity. Um, and it's just been radically different because the biggest thing that's changed. And I think I had mentioned to this to you wanting to talk about was that shift from um, experiencing life as let's say, 
um, somewhere on a spectrum of real or not real or more of a dream or not a dream to everything now being non-dual, but I don't like the word non-dual anymore because of its issues. I like this term now unidual that I did get from Tim, but I think it it really encapsulates that both and it's that co-arising of oneness and separateness um, that of course gives rise to relationship, but that everything has become real again and doesn't lose any of the mystery. It's become more mysterious and it's been um, this new appreciation of just the, the awe for the mundane. It's not mundane anymore. And that all of these things that I had been taught to look beyond or beneath or, you know, to dissolve into that that is this you know it's it's that everything is a real expression of you know that and there's so many words you could say for that right it's like the ground of being or pure awareness or pure consciousness or i don't i don't feel it's pure consciousness anymore but a lot more of this um i was describing this the other day and it felt really um close to how i how i how i experience it is that it used to be that everything is really the ground of being, right? So you could reduce everything that's, you know, a form and that that's really its essence is that baseline. And now it's more so that the the ground of being or being itself has, is, is blooming into all of this. So there's that being becoming, yeah. um, but it's really that this is the ground of being, but it's the ground of being emerged into all of this so no longer is anything blocking that because it is that it's just that formlessness now and formed and this is a radical radical change for me of course because it it removes all of the derealization it removes all of the need to you know detach from anything um and it gives back you know so much of what what I had lost through through spirituality but even kind of gave me reality back like tenfold mm. sort of that oh my god it's not this oh, everything's actually formlessness it's oh, fuck. that formlessness is actually all of this it's become all of this and it's for me it's it's just now that's what I most really want to share with people I think so I had a, a thought and I wonder if you ever considered Jessica that you've gone on a circuitous route and do you consider you might have ended up being a kind of spiritual teacher that I might have ended up ended up being a kind of spiritual teacher in the the kind of things you're saying are very consistent of what people in Zen have said and all the rest. Like, I wonder if what I'm really getting at is is there a way to escape that? Because on the one hand, you're doing a, a well-timed critique of non-duality, but do you really step outside of that, or do you become then a kind of spiritual teacher? You're saying you're saying you know you're like the Zen master saying just listen to that babbling brook. Right. Forget all your your attempts to find formlessness. Just look at the, the, mm -hmm. the glory of the babbling brook. And I wonder if you you've considered that that you you've ended up being there in a sense. Um, I don't think so. I don't think I experience it that way. I do I do resonate with what you're saying about there's this one part of what I feel called to do, which is sort of the um I guess you could say critique, critiquing or sort of unpacking the the philosophies of different non-dualisms if you will um and then revisioning other ones or exploring other ones and i think what i do ultimately want to do is is offer that this experience this uni-dual experience um that i think you know you can experience at one of 
and doing the eye gazing with Tim, but really that experience of being, um, and he uses the term, which I really love, which is univigil, um, where there's that experience of being both separate, but also one at the same time, and to experience how life changes and how relationship changes from that, from that level of perception. But I don't, I don't think I see myself as a teacher or wanting to become a teacher per se. I think um, I do want to share these things, but it's more like I want to explore these things together with other people, like in community. I do want to create community, I think, where this stuff can be explored together, but in definitely not in a hierarchical way. Um, more of, let's say, like uh, I've been part of some online platforms where you know, everyone's encouraged to, let's say, um, give a guided meditation or to give a talk about something. Like, it's sort of more about everybody collaborating on something, which is also what I've experienced a lot with with Tim. Like, it's hard for me to even call Tim a teacher, right? Yeah, or, um, yeah it, was, it was a deliberately cheeky question in some way, because I, I just would be interested okay. to see how you would respond to it. And Tim, in a sense, he's I'm, I'm probably put a spiritual teacher on his tax return. I don't know. But he doesn't really assume that role. And I think quite rightly, he thinks that it's different to being a violin teacher or something like that, or a driving instructor. Like you, you don't really teach spirituality that way. And in the time I spent with Tim, different people might feel differently about this, but I didn't observe people treating him like a teacher. Like it's almost like he didn't attract people who wanted that kind of thing. And it was very much like yeah. a shared experience and he was running the group. But it was a, there were some really right. interesting people in that group, like equally as interesting as as Tim, um, you know. So there was always a very shared energy right. in the group, and people just didn't seem to relate to Tim as someone you would take this course of lessons from, and yeah. you know, by lesson ten you'd be enlightened. It was more like a sharing of knowledge. See, I, I yeah. Yeah, very much value. I think it's entirely. It seems to me to be a far healthier approach. It might not be the the right approach for everyone. I don't know, but it, it seems to me far healthier in this. Yeah. I mean, it's also a question of right approach to what exactly, because what are you seeking? And I think a lot of people that come to Tim's or are refreshed by what Tim is doing or saying or offering are people that are disillusioned by that old model of, you know, the the guru or the teacher who claims that they're not really a teacher because they don't really exist, that kind of thing um, that you eventually see through where they're sort of the holder of the you know, the vision that everyone else is supposed to get to. Whereas with Tim, and I just felt it the other day, it's like, I feel like in the group that ICU that he has that meets every Sunday, it's mm. like we're all part of kind of co-creating this new experiential paradigm that's it's based on a philosophy. But, you know, it, he part of why he loves, I think, having this group is because it challenges him and he wants people to he wants people to challenge him and doubt him. Um, you know, he teaches often the importance of, of doubt. Um, and so it's just those elements of guruism or that sort of that hierarchy thing are just not there. So it feels more like he's a friend. He's a somebody who's asking, offering us something to try on and give our feedback on it and, you know, ask questions, questions, questions. It's it's just very egalitarian. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or bring up? Um, let me see if there was, I did take a few notes. Um, gosh, I mean, there's just so many things, so I'm not sure. <laughs> How about you? 
I'm, I sort of feel kind of good at this point. And we could always do something else in the future. Sure. I just feel as in terms of the, the flow of the interview or yeah. conversation, I think it's probably that's for me, that's, that's gone well. And it's just what we've done probably fits into one package. Yeah, I think you're right. Cause I feel like if I open up something else, it's like a long, like, I'm like, let's talk about is consciousness primary or not. Let's <laughs> don't think that's a good time to start. Talking. I mean, I'd love to do that, but I think they really would fit that's on another fine. occasion. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. No, I feel really uh, good. You asked some questions that really like that sparked some, some good reflection for me. Great. But so before we sort of conclude the recording part, um, is, do you want to mention your website? And I don't know if you're running any groups or anything at the moment or doing anything like that. I know you've trained as a group facilitator, right? But anything you want yeah. to mention before we cut the recording? Yeah, sure. Well, um, the website is thegloriousbothand.com. And what I am um, coordinating right now is a sort of casual um, support meetup group because I've been meeting one-on-one -on -one with a lot of people that are coming out of sort of the haze of the the derealizing non-dual um, neo-advita stuff um, and just connecting with each other and realizing that we're all in very similar places, um, trying to kind of return to our sort of verve and sense of, you know, motivation and engagement. And so we are, um, it's about eight of us so far, um, but I encourage people to email me, like to write through uh, the website, share your story, um, ask questions, but also let me know if you would want to to meet other people, connect with other people that are navigating this kind of transition to a a new uh, and kind of a return to reality in a new way, if you will. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jessica. Sure. Thank you.